This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Improve your development skills by completing coding exercises that are peer-reviewed by real humans. Learn more at Upcase.com. I just got done having lunch and explaining the double slit experiment to folks. Okay. People have seen Interstellar, so we're, we're, uh, it started like general relativity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Just started talking about quantum weirdness. <laughs> it's fun. Hey everybody, this is Mark in San Francisco. And this is Gordon in Boston. And this is Build Phase. That sounds a lot more educated than our conversation at lunch, which was all about Batman and, you know, the realities of being Batman, how long it would take to get to that point where you could be Batman and whether or not that's worth it. Basically, we came up with it, you know, you're about 55 by the time you're an expert in that that amount of things. And in that shape. So, like, for a 55-year-old at that point, you're in pretty good shape. Are we assuming that you had to, like, earn all the money to be Batman? No, or no, no, no. You're the handed same. the money because that's the way it goes. But, like, if you, you know, you're handed all the money, so you automatically have infinite resources. But in reality, you're a young kid. You decide to become a master in, like, martial arts and the world's greatest detective and also, like, learn all these specialized skills that Batman has you're like 55 by the time and like get that strong. And you know what I mean? Like there's a lot of specialization going on in Batman's life. And, and so then the, the big problem is that you get to be, you're 55, you know, and now you're like, cool, I'm Batman now. And really we're talking about like football career number of years here, because you're taking a lot of hits. There's going to be some concussions, some brain damage. Sure. You're got a solid, like, three four years if you really want to stretch it of being batman mm-hmm. well it, it kind of depends which batman we're talking about like mm. if we're talking about christopher nolan's batman i think his emphasis was really on just kicking a lot of ass mm-hmm. so i think you could do that at a younger age but the comics really play up batman's intellect and his detective ability mm-hmm. which is something that you can't just acquire in your 30s right Sure. There, I'm with you. Yeah, you'd yeah. have to be an older, an older man, an but older he's fellow. Still, he's still a fairly accomplished martial artist. You know what I mean? At some point, like you have to, and he's still jacked. Right. Like it takes a lot of time to do any one of those things. So you combine them all together, it's going to take you a little while. Well, he was just in decent shape until he was trained by the League of Shadows. Sure. Okay. Okay. You know, that's some intense training, having to fight off like 40 dudes right. in some monastery at the top of a mountain. Mm-hmm. We did come to the conclusion, though, that honestly, the whole problem here is that uh, I'm shamelessly ripping off all of my coworkers' funny ideas and lines, by the way, just so we're clear. Uh, really, like if Batman's if Batman's end goal, if the, if the reason Batman is Batman is because the cops can't do their job right. You know what I mean? Being Batman and catching criminals and then handing them to the cops to put in prison doesn't seem like the best solution, right? You put them in Arkham. They're going to get out again. If the cops are the point of failure here, maybe don't give them to the cops. So if Batman were to just become the warden of Arkham, I think everybody's life would be a lot easier. See, the, I think the big problem here is that Batman is very noncommittal. Batman's not super crazy about being Batman. <laughs> right. he's, he's a very reluctant superhero. Yeah, yeah. 
He's just like, oh, this shit. I don't want to have to do this again. He doesn't want to be the warden of Arkham Asylum. Well, no, like, like honestly, it's a it's a numbers game, right? Like, none of these people, none of these supervillains have actual superpowers. They're just in goofy costumes, and they run around, like, hitting people with hammers and shit. So, <laughs> given enough time, the cops will catch the Joker. Right. And the big problem here is that they catch if, if the cops catch the Joker and then they put him in Arkham as it is now, like, you know, he's going to break out somehow. Like some idiot guard is going to like hand him the key to the cell because he tricks them and then he's going to get out and then Batman's got to go chase him down again. But if like Batman just goes in and just implements a basic set of security protocols there, you know what I mean? It's just like, no, maybe don't give the inmates the keys to their cells all of a sudden, you have Joker doesn't get on it on the street as fast, and now the cops don't have to worry about, like, the Joker and the Riddler and the Penguin. They just have to worry about, like, one or two of those dudes. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, I imagine that in, like, season three of Arrested Development where the U.S. Marines are training the Iraqi military personnel at the prison. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, now, now, what yeah. did you forget? <laughs> oh, through the metal detector. That's okay. Try again. Right, yeah. You know, someone smarter than me on the internet did – once say that the Joker's superpower is um, his timing. What, he has timing? <laughs> no, he just always seems to be in the right place at the right time Okay, for the Joker's ends. And in that way, he's a lot like Batman. Sure. He's smart like Batman. Mm-hmm. He's always in the right place at the right time. He's relatively strong, except he doesn't have to be as strong because he has an army of idiots. Right. Idiots. <laughs> Getting back to the longevity of the thing, like, in reality, like... If Batman is just the warden, he'd also just have an easier life because no one is like coming into Gotham like, oh, I got to get that warden of Arkham Asylum. You know what I mean? He's because he's made this thing out of himself, this relatively, let's be honest, ineffective. If anything, like he's increased the supervillain population of Gotham over his with, you know, during his time. Right. Well, it's just like, you know, military presence in the Middle East. Yeah. Arguably, you know, makes <laughs> more <segue>. terrorists. <laughs> right. It's, it's not too different. Sure. It does seem like if he could really just, you know, hunker down for a few years and develop a new prison that's not just like right. Alcatraz but like falling apart. Right. Like he could <laughs> right. make some incredibly awesome Supermax prison where you put the Joker in there and yeah. he's in there. Yep. You know, I mean – they could put he's Magneto away, and, I, and I'm aware I'm relating the dumbasses in the DC universe <laughs> to the you know relatively normal people in the Marvel universe. <laughs> sure. Like you know, in the Marvel universe, they put Magneto away, and he stayed away right. until like a group of dudes went in and broke him out. Well, even in the DC universe, like they put General Zod in that light <laughs> thing. You know what I mean? There's- in a mirror. Whatever. I don't know what the hell that was. There, it's like I'm a prism. That, I'm saying there's precedence for like <laughs> keeping people <laughs> that are much that are much like more physically adept to breaking out of things than the Joker. No, nothing that happens with Superman should ever be considered a precedent. <laughs> he stored him in a mirror. <laughs> well, I'm pretty sure the laws of physics do not allow for storing evil generals inside of prisms in space. All I'm saying is that, like, there's got to be a better solution. One, like, maybe just get them out of Gotham. <laughs> like, bring them to a different prison mm-hmm. in a town that isn't so shitty. Right? Yeah. They need to construct some supermax in the middle of, like... Outer space. The, 
yeah, that about works. outer space or just like somewhere just not send them to the moon middle of Nebraska. <laughs> yeah right 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 wyoming that's my favorite i told you this once but my favorite thing that i found out recently is that there are more i hope this is true because i'm just going to keep repeating it as if it is true there are more u.s citizens in mexico city than there are in all of wyoming wow isn't that a great stat that's impressive yeah so you basically just build a wall around wyoming Throw all of Gotham's supervillains there. Again, they don't have superpowers. They're not going to – they can't do anything at that point. Seems like a reasonable plan. We fixed the Batman problem. Right. Good job. Yeah, way to go, Batman. It's a pretty good show. We should we should just call it here. I don't think we're going to hit a higher note than – About five minutes in, I was like, we should just do this whole show about <laughs> superheroes. Anyway, I could follow up on that uh, – Q cash thing. Yeah. You want to take a couple minutes and tell the fine folks how it turned out? Yeah, sure. I think it turned out good. I said this on Twitter, but basically after this show, I guess on Monday, I talked to Joe Ferris, our CTO, about it and was like kind of going through the problem, basically everything that I said last week on the show, going through the problem and really kind of trying to talk about like how... I wasn't sure how to test it because so much of this architecture is about disk access and callbacks and a lot of it's related to timing and I couldn't figure out how to test it and Joe actually suggested that I try using fakes for the testing instead of mocks. So a mock object would be when you say like create this dummy object that basically has no value of its own but that mimics exactly this other object in terms of interface and then you can then make assertions on whether or not specific invocations happen on that object you can even stub out specific methods to return specific things but they're honestly all of these mock objects they tend to be a little clumsy OC mock, especially OC mock three. OC mock three is very nice framework and it's about as concise as you can hope for with mocks. But even that, you got to admit, like at times can be very, very clumsy. I'm thinking specifically of like there. So one of the things you can do is if you have to like on our network stack, there's like a call uh, completion block. You know what I mean? So it's like perform request and then pass in request with completion block and then that takes a completion block, right? Well, if I mock that out, in order to call that completion block, I have to do this stub and do syntax, which then hands you back an invocation instance and then you have to get the block out of the invocation with a by reference pointer and then call that block yourself. It's fairly ugly and fairly confusing. And I honestly, I, I kind of, I think I can write it by memory now, but it took me months of like looking at that up and be like, how the hell do I do this again? Not my favorite thing. And so it's just kind of ugly. So that's mocks. Mock, and mocks are useful for this kind of a thing. But a fake is similar in concept. Um, it's an actual object, a concrete object that you would create that conforms to the same interface as your normal object. So for ex in this example, 
this cache object, right? Which is just a thin wrapper around a mutable array and some NS coding stuff that let it write itself to disk and pull itself back from disk. I pulled that thing's interface out into a request cache protocol. And then I renamed that class as like an on-disk cache. Then I created a fake cache that conformed to that request cache protocol. So now I can use dependency injection and I can pass this fake cache into these objects the, you know, it, it only exists in the test bundle. It doesn't exist in the main code, and it's not used in production code. But it was an even lighter weight wrapper around uh, mutable array that just exposed everything as like read write mutable, as opposed to the other way, which was like read only immutable, whatever. And it has no disk access, at, at, on, you know. So I, now I don't have to think about disk access when I'm dealing with this stuff. When I'm not trying to test the cache itself, I don't have to worry about the side effects that happen inside the cache. I can just pass the fake cache into these objects that use a cache and even write additional methods on the fake that can tell me other internal state about the thing. Does that make sense? Yeah. So he suggested using a a fake and it kind of, I, I felt myself kind of turn another corner on testing where all of a sudden he was just like oh god like i i'd known about dependency injection and it kind of made sense to me in theory but i hadn't gotten into it and i hadn't seen really the point i should note by the way that this is vastly simplified in this case because not simplified but the real world use of these objects ends up being identical to if we hadn't used dependency injection because they're almost all singletons just because of the stuff that we said earlier that, you know, they kind of have to be singletons because we're dealing with threading and disk access. And I'm just, that stuff scares the shit out of me. So I just want to make sure that those things never move around. So since they're all singletons, I just put that dependency injection directly into the singleton constructor. Got you it. know what I mean? So where mm-hmm. I would use like lazy initialization and I just have a property and then inside the property I do like, you know, if this IVAR exists, return the IVAR. If it doesn't exist, assign it to this and then return the IVAR, right? Lazy initialization, we use it all the time. Instead of using a lazy initialization, I use dependency injection and just passed it in to the init method in the constructor. But that meant that from the tests where I'm not using the actual singleton, I'm creating discrete instances for each test, I'm able to pass in exactly the cache I want it to use or, you know, anything. But you still have those methods declared publicly in the The app itself. The init methods, yes. But you just kind of assume that you should be using the singleton in the sort of app code and the initializers are there for testing. Yes, Okay. I mean, I suppose the downside to this is that because I've declared that publicly, people could, like a developer that isn't me, could see that and use that init method instead of the singleton. But at that point, I just think that they don't have a good idea of what the overall architecture. Yeah. It, then that's just a problem that's either solved by documentation or code I review. suppose. Yeah, having it in the commit message or in the code. 
Um, mm. I suppose you could also do something where it's not public in the app, but then you have a category in the test bundle that exposes that method. Yeah, you could. Yeah. I always feel weird about doing that. Honestly, I get why you would do that, but it always makes me feel a little yeah. gross. The big thing here though, for me is that because of Swift, you know, once we move to Swift, we're not going to have the option of mocks. You can't do mocks because mocks work based on metaprogramming. They do a lot of, you know, swizzling, method swizzling internally. Uh, you basically start swizzling methods on classes and returning objects that way. And that doesn't work in Swift because Swift is a strictly typed language. That's not an option. So this fake idea is something that I think we're going to have to be comfortable with if we want to do any kind of real testing on iOS because we're going to have to be able to pass. Like we're still going to have to do the same things we have to do now, so we're going to have to end up passing stuff through. Mm -hmm. The nice thing there is I think we could use extensions. Can you create init methods on extensions? I don't actually know. I don't think you can. I'm not sure. No, you, you yeah, can. Yeah, you can. Yeah, yeah you can. The the extension section in the book says extensions in Swift can provide new initializers. Yeah, but you can't do it for structs. Or maybe it's just that you can't do convenience in structs. Yeah, so you can you do can't. it in structs. You just can't create a convenience initializer in a struct. You can create an initializer. You just can't create a convenience initializer. Mm. I just don't think convenience initializers are a thing in structs. They're only a thing for classes. So whatever. Yeah, so I, I really liked the way the code turned out with using fakes. I ended up being able to test the whole thing and I think test the whole this whole stack really well. Basically, the stack that I ended up with is the network client at the bottom. So it's actually the thing that's actually doing taking in requests. Parallel to that is a cache that sits on disk that takes operations, request operations. Those request operations, when they're created, assign themselves a timestamp and a request. And so those are passed in the cache. The cache does some very simple NS coding stuff to write itself from disk and unarchive itself from disk. It writes itself to disk every time operations are added or removed. And then it has like a next operation method that it sorts its internal mutable array by date and then returns the top object. So it always returns the oldest operation. Sitting above that, basically above both of those, is this queue thing. It has like one public method, which is flush queue with completion block. And it grabs the next operation from the cache and then hands that to an internal method to execute that request, also passing that completion block through. Inside that internal method, if the operation is nil, then it calls the completion block. If it isn't, it hands that request, the request inside the operation, hands that to the network client. The network client performs the request. If that request comes back with any errors, then we bail and call the operation, let's call the completion block. If it succeeds, we call the success block. And what the success block does is recurse back in, it removes that operation from the cache and then recurses back into that same method. So it does the whole thing over again. So basically what you end up with is you end up with a single method that will execute a request. 
If the request fails, it stops. If the request succeeds, it calls the next method. And if there are no requests left in the cache, it stops. It's actually a fairly simple, fairly straightforward thing. And I was able to test a lot of that because of fakes, because I was able to pass this fake cache in, like load it with exactly these objects, pass it in. I never had to worry about disk access when I'm testing this method, you know what I mean? Because it's all local stuff. I'm able to just check that internal array to make sure things are being added or removed, right? And then I was just able to check that if the cache is nil or the request returns an error, that that completion block gets called. And that kind of was it. Like that basically covered all of the points of this class. Sitting right above that is a very, very thin class that's basically an interface for this thing, right? It has two methods. It has a attempt to flush queue method, and it has a add request method. This thing, we called it like the synchronized network request queue. Basically, this is all of the locking that has to happen and all the state to make sure that this thing is never like all those edge cases we were talking about, about like, well, what if this happens twice in a row? And what if all that got solved by funneling it into this one object that just has like a synchronized block around everything and its own internal queue that it manages that it pushes all operations on. So all operations that hit the queue and therefore the cache and therefore the network client, they all happen on the same thread. It's all synchronized, so they're not going to double up on each other. And then it has this very simple Boolean logic inside the attempt to flush queue where it says, like, you know, does synchronized opens up the queue with an op- a new operation, checks to see if this bool is true. If it is, it fails, right? If it isn't, it continues, like this currently flushing thing. If it isn't true, it sets it to true, then tells the thing to flush, and inside its completion block sets that Boolean to false, right? So it can only ever be running one flush operation at any time, period it's like so locked up like all of that stuff is just locked up right there and then the add request method is also synchronized also pushes everything onto that same queue and it wraps the request in one of those operation classes and then hands that to the cache right this whole thing is completely tested too right like this sounds like to me it, sound, it all sounds like stuff that's like, Jesus Christ, this is going to be a pain in the ass. How the hell do I even test this? I use that same fake cache from earlier here, and I tested the add request by just being like, I instantiated this thing with this class, with this fake cache, and then tested that if I say add this request, the first object inside the cache is in operation with that request. And then the hard thing, that attempt to flush queue, that's all tested with a fake queue. So I pulled the, the main interface for the queue out into a flushable queue protocol that just has one method on it, flush queue with completion block. And then just wrote my own little queue. And this thing, all it does is every time flush queue with completion block is called, it holds onto the completion block and increments the number of times it was called. And that's a public because it's all this is all internal. That's a public property that I can just check. And then it has another method called complete flush 
that just calls that completion block. So now I don't have to worry about time. I don't have to worry about threads. I don't have to worry about anything when I'm testing this thing. It's very simple. I just say like if I call this attempt to flush queue, if I call it twice in a row, the queue should get called once. If I call flush queue and the count will be one, and then if I say flush queue, complete the flush, and then tell it to flush again, now the count will be two. So you're, t- you're testing the locking there. I'm testing the locking, and I'm essentially testing what should be really hard to test because it relies on time, and it relies on network callbacks. And like this should be really a pain in the ass to test. But because I have this fake object that I just shoved in there, I can control that time myself. You know what I mean? I can just tell it, you're done now, and then it's going to call that completion block, and that now I can verify that this other state happens. And then there's another thing that kind of sits off in the corner that listens for notifications from the cache about whether or not an object had been added, and then also listens to reachability. I use this reachability. It's just called reachability, which I think is a horrible name for a <laughs> for a framework because it makes all this really hard, but I'll put the link in the show notes. But it has like a very simple block-based approach to monitoring the reachability stuff. Like you just set a reachable block, you know? It's like, cool, that block will just now be fired when the network becomes available. And so both of those just funnel into the same method that just tells that synchronized queue thing. It just tells that synchronized queue thing, try to flush the queue if you can, Mm -hmm. you know? And from that point, everything will just kind of take care of itself. And so that class only cares about when you become reachable and not when you become unreachable, right? Right. Because when you become unreachable, it will fail. It It will never perform the success block. That operation will never get removed from the cache. And so it will just be there for next time. Right. So who cares? If the network isn't available, who cares? It will try to flush it. It won't. Done. Like it, it, it won't go past that. So it's not a huge deal to try to perform requests all the time. It's just a thing that like we want to make sure that if we get access to the network, we want to try to flush the queue if we can. And if we add new items to the cache, we want to try to flush the queue if we can. I spiked it out and it was pretty close to where it is now, but there were still so many edge cases. And I was really impressed with how, honestly, like it sounds cliche, but like really getting these classes to the point where they could be tested did make the design here better. It really, really did. A good example of this is that there was one point where I wasn't testing that synchronized queue because I couldn't figure out how. And there was a bit inside that lower level queue, the actual flushable queue thing. That Boolean logic that I was talking about, the synchronized queue, at one point it was in the normal queue, right? So inside this execute request method, it was like it was setting its own internal state. So it was like if the operation is nil, set currently flushing to no and then return or else set the currently flushing boolean to yes and then execute this request and then if there's a an error set it to no or if there isn't an error call the success block and it was like this internal state that was really hard to reason about honestly like it's really hard to see like well is there an edge case here where this could possibly happen you kind of had to flip back and forth between a couple classes And it was impossible to test. It was really, honestly, you couldn't test it because, again, it relied on time. It was all about, like, at this moment in time, is this Boolean yes or no? 
because it's always going to end up being no. So you can't just call this thing and say like, now what is this? You'd have to like call it, stop it partway through and then say, okay, now what is this? Right. And just made it really, really hard to test. And I was kind of beating my head about it for a while. And when I eventually I was just like, I don't know. And I opened the pull request. And that's Joe Ferris again kind of looked at it and was like, this was really kind of hard to reason about. What if we move this to like this block-based thing that I was that I described a second ago, right? Where it just calls a completion block. It's like, wow, actually that's way easier to reason about. Inside that request queue, it either keeps going or there are these two specific cases where it will call the completion block. I don't have to test the Boolean logic about whether or not it's going to keep going. All I care about is this these exit points. You know, it's like well, that's easy. So I'm able to easily test whether or not it it's going to call a completion block. And then inside the synchronized queue, because I moved that to a completion block, and because I moved that Boolean logic in there, all of a sudden I was able to use a fake to simulate that manually. And it gave me a really clean way to test that same stuff. And it was just kind of like this mind-blowing thing where, you know, he mentioned this and I was like, well, wait, does this mean I can test? And I kind of had this like chain reaction of thoughts. It was like, if we move this there, then I think I can create a fake that looks like this and I can do this. And it was just like, holy shit, like all this kind of falls in line. And it ends up being a much better architecture that was like driven because it was hard to test. You know, it was also hard to reason about. Like there was also that, but really, like what I should have been doing is I should have listened to that thing inside my head that was saying, like, this internal state is hard to track. This internal state relies on time, and it's hard to test. I said it's hard to test because it's hard to test, which was wrong. I should have said it's hard to test because maybe I can do this in an easier way. You know what I mean? I just had to change my frame of thinking about this. Joe helped me there. But like, I don't know, it just really, it really did improve that bit of code. It's like one of the, I've had this thought a number of times, but it, but it really was a really good example for me of like, okay, I have to listen to that voice. I have to, like, if I follow this, it really actually does help in design. Such a good CTO. Yeah. So that was kind of my week. Ended up shipping that. And- I, I just took note of how, I mean, aside from the assumption that you don't have to worry about the network responses, mm-hmm. all of it was so general. It's totally general. Nothing about it, and and granted, it's not hooked into the app at the current moment. But um, I, I can I can see all that in my head, right? Like I can see like it's not hooked into the app, but but the whole thing is so self-contained and so generic and so straightforward. Like I think it's a really good example. I feel bad it's not open source. I feel bad kind of talking about how good I think it is and then not being like, and go to this link to see it, you know, cause I, not to show it off, but I kind of just want to get feedback from like on this whole thing. I was like, every time I saw anyone in Slack, I was like, Hey, you want to go look at this, <laughs> this architecture, like prodding people about it. Like, Hey, why don't you go check out this PR? Cause I'd love to get feedback. You know, this whole stack has a shitload of objects, but each object is so focused probably some of the most focused objects I've ever written and that, yeah, it, it ends up being super general and the whole thing I feel like could be picked up and dropped in another app and maybe I have to change some prefixes, but like, that's it. Like this thing would just work anywhere else with the notable exception of the completion blocks that were, <laughs> you know, we're not using the responses basically is what it boils down to. 
Yeah, I mean the points where you could see it hooking into the app are not super generalized, but the the meat of it, the queue, the cache, right, could go anywhere. Yeah, surprisingly happy with how that whole thing turned out. Given that I was kind of like, I don't know, you know, like like listen to last week's episode, you know, like I just listened to that a few days ago, and it's just kind of like wishy washy about it, and like, oh god, I don't know. There's all these edge cases and threading and disk access and all these things, and how do you test it and like. You know, I basically mocked it out at that, like, kind of stubbed it out at that point. And I was kind of like, ugh. But now, a week later. Do you see fakes being a common tool that you reach for now oh, when yeah. testing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, it really did blow my mind. Like, so you noted w- about that the only thing that felt kind of weird to you was pulling the interface out into a protocol specifically for testing. Do you still right. think that? Yeah, I mean, I I don't think it's bad. I think it's it's an awesome trade off. It's mm. it's a it's a net win. It's just anytime you are changing the interface to something to accommodate testing, and it's like this code that's only being used in the app really is tweaked for testing. Kind of, I cock my head at it a little bit and go, eh, I don't know about that. But yep. I agree that it was the right thing to do because testing it and making sure making sure it works is obviously <laughs> the most important thing. Sure, I mean, over just like the aesthetic of having this stuff in the interface. Yeah. I think we've talked about this before, about like using protocols. I, we, I swear to God, we've talked about this before, about like like moving objects, interfaces into protocols. And I don't remember why we talked about doing that. It was around polymorphism. And I don't remember why we had talked about doing that. But one of the things that I think we said was like, oh, it's just kind of like a it's a lot of work for a little trade off for very, very little benefit. Moving like in whole whole objects, which is basically what I did. I don't know. I feel like I'm kind of starting to flip on that. Like I kind of – there was something about writing these methods, even internal methods that were more general in what they took, right? They weren't saying give me this class. They were saying like just give me something that conforms to this type. I'll do what I need to do and that thing will do whatever it needs to do. Whatever that is, like, you know, the the example that I brought up, which is forward thinking and probably not going to happen, but was kind of a thing that I thought about during all this was like by pulling that cache protocol out of the cache's interface and making it a protocol. Like, yes, that allowed me to create a fake cache that I could just plug into this thing. But it also means that now this on disk cache has a very specific purpose. It's there to represent that kind of caching activity in relation to disk access by pulling that out in theory you could all of a sudden very very easily create something that maybe writes to iCloud documents you know what I mean or Dropbox or like Mm -hmm. some other network thing and just and it has those same methods add operation remove operation next operation you know what I mean but all of a sudden it does that by hitting something else you know I think that's interesting. And I said this a few times while I was doing this too, that like I think all of this becomes even more transparent with Swift. You have protocols in Swift and the way you define functions and methods that take protocols in Swift is exactly like you would when you define functions that take classes, right? You just have the type in there. You don't have to do this wacky ID angle bracket protocol name, angle bracket, which I've always kind of hated that syntax. You don't have to do that. So you don't look at something and say, like, for good or bad, you don't look at something and immediately say, like, oh, that's just a protocol. You look at something 
and you'll always say like something of that type. Got it. You know what I mean? If that type is a concrete class, fine. That's a very specific function that can only work with a class. But if that type is a protocol, then it just means that your code is more flexible and more reusable in theory. Yeah, a loose metaphor is like hiring someone to do work where you put out a, an ad and you're like, I need people who can do A, B, and C, not I'm going to hire this person over here because they do A, B, or C. Right. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. No, it does. Yeah. You only care about the behavior. You don't care about the specific implementer of that behavior. Right. And it's kind of, I don't know, there's something kind of nice about that. Even in naming, it kind of bugged me that all the, like by pulling that cache interface out, I kind of lost that nice name of request cache, you know? So it was like prefix request cache. It's like, that's kind of a nice name, you know? And I had to change it to like request on disk cache. It's like, oh, that's kind of a gross, ugly name. It's more descriptive given the separation there of like, here's the interface for a cache. And this is a concrete example of an on disk cache. But it's kind of an ugly name. The thing is, I never had to deal with that. You know what I mean? I literally, I almost never had to deal with the name on disk cache because everything that I was dealing with was of the type cache, request cache, you know? Yep. Same thing with the queue. I stopped thinking about things as like, this is a request queue and started thinking about things as this is a flushable queue. Yeah, it's you're describing the work to be done yeah. without describing how it should be done. Right. Like like back to that, you know, hiring metaphor, you're hiring someone to, you know, do some carpentry, but you don't care what kind of hammer they use. Right. Right. Like you're just looking for a carpenter. Yeah. Yeah. Really nice. I I don't know. I and, and I think we've said on the show a number of times about how like I think we kind of both have this thing about protocols, we want to use them more, but we don't for whatever reason. I think I've said that I I don't feel like objective C developers for whatever reason or cocoa developers i don't feel like they reach for protocols as much as maybe they could they do it for delegates that's basically the only i'd be willing to put money down that that there's a good portion of the cocoa developer community that has only ever written protocols for delegates don't you think i agree with that yep. yeah it's kind of an it's just kind of a nice way to think about stuff so yeah i do think that I do think that going forward, and not even just because of Swift, had I kind of had this epiphany, whatever the hell you want to call it, with fakes and testing a few months ago, I think I would have been writing all my Objective-C stuff this way. I think there's stuff in the last project, not off the top of my head, I can't think of any, but I can almost guarantee you that there's places that we used mocks that we could have used fakes and the tests would have been cleaner and simpler and safer because of it. Like I can imagine, for example... Think about our entire networking stack. I can imagine a fake API client that would just simplify everything. Mm-hmm. So we would have a, like a public method to invoke the completion block without having to <laughs> yeah. stub the completion block. Yeah. Yep. You know what I mean? And you could, you, could, like, you could just do more things with that. Like Ironically enough, like you don't have to reach into objects as much. You can write like that stupid counter that counted how many times that method was invoked. That was literally two lines of code. You know what I mean? Inside the initializer, it sets it to zero. And then in, every time you call that, it does plus equals one. Right? Dead simple. But the simplicity that it brought to those tests, not having to say like, oh, well, how do I – I use this mock and I have to – OC mock actually doesn't have a really good – interface right now for this thing was invoked this many times so now i got to figure out how do i fake that how do i how do i test that 
No, just increment a stupid counter and check it. <laughs> you know, dead, dead simple. About as simple as you could hope for. So I think they're definitely going to be something that I use. Honestly, I mean, they just like I, I keep saying this, and I feel like I'm kind of prattling on about it, but I was just really impressed with how the simple introduction of fakes improved my code significantly and my feelings about the code. You know, I'm more excited about that code today than I was last week, specifically because of the ability to test it and because of the the ease with which I was able to test it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to having the chance to try it or realizing that, hey, I could use a fake here Yeah, instead of mocking. Yeah, I think I'm still going to have problems for a while recognizing that the same way all this stuff is. You know, you learn something new. I'll probably try to overuse them for a while or I'll probably have trouble still seeing when they should be used for a while. But I'm looking forward to the point where they're just there and they're just part of my normal toolkit and I'm able to just use them. Anyway, before we go, I wanted to note that new conference because I think it's awesome and I'm going to go. It's just called Functional Swift, right? Um, yes. <laughs> fun, fun Swift Conf. Didn't they shorten it to? I don't know. Yeah, that's the URL. But I think the actual thing is just Functional Swift. Yeah, Functional Swift Conference. We can call it Fun Swift Conf, though. That's fun. That's God. That's fun. <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> it's Brandon Williams from um, Kickstarter and Chris Eidhoff from Objective-C.io and the Functional Swift book, and uh, he did Deck Setup and you know all that stuff. And they're doing like a one-day conference specifically on Functional Swift in Brooklyn at Kickstarter's office, and it's free, which is kind of crazy, right? So it's it's a free conference. Right now they say they have six speakers, Andy Matushek, Brian Jessak, Jessak? I don't know how to say it. Jessiak? I'm not sure. Uh, Justin Sparsummers, Natasha Murishev, John Gallagher, and Brandon Williams are talking. It looks awesome. And given that it's free, especially if you live in New York and you're at all interested in this, it seems like a no-brainer. It's on a Saturday, too. So it's on Saturday, December 6th. I'm probably going to try to go down, I think, Friday night and leave on Sunday morning just to make sure they have, like, all day Saturday in Brooklyn to do this conference. I'm really, honestly, very excited for it. Like, we talked a lot about technical topics, and this is just going to be a straight-up technical conference about functional Swift, which is, like, right up my alley. So, yeah, check that out. Sweet. Uh, show notes for this episode are going to be found at buildphase.fm slash 64. As always, we'd like to hear from you, so email us at buildphase at thoughtbot.com or reach out on Twitter at buildphase. And we always appreciate ratings and reviews on iTunes. All right. Talk to you later. Cool, later.